just one of those destinations that it's got everything you want. You have the opportunity to be very up close and personal with these bears. I'm zooming in. I'm getting these great shots, great light with nice color. These two young bulls sparring, testing out their dominance or strengths or weaknesses in beautiful light with this huge grizzly boar. He's coming our way. I mean, what are the odds? Will he keep coming? He did. He just kept coming. But there were several wolves in there just moving around. There's meat coming up in the, the beaks of these birds flying by. And it's just so exciting. We can't contain ourselves. They keep howling. And so we're like, we just got to go check it out. And what happened next was magical. Mind blowing. Just, you know, throw the cameras out the window. World's best day. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, we have Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Mark Raycroft as your hosts, and we are going to take you on a journey. We have traveled a lot over the decades to wondrous wildlife destinations, and one of our favorites, and one of the most popular across our listening audience, has to be Alaska. So today's podcast, we are going to pull one of our favorite days from our memory banks and tell the story of our adventures in Alaska. Before we get going, I want to say hello to my co-host, Michael. How's it been? I am sitting in Atlanta, Georgia, working on a little project for one of my clients. So I've been here for a week and I got another week to go. So when you think of Atlanta, you think of it being fairly warm right because we're pretty far south but it's been really chilly here it's below freezing every morning and then barely getting up in the 40s but it's it's cool to be down here and it's pre-super bowl is not so good though it's crazy traffic i'll tell you what no kidding right and you've been busy you texted a picture to us yesterday and i did not even try to count the hard drives on your desk there in your hotel room man <laughs> working hard good stuff but we're running like four different kinds of cameras. So you get back every day and you have to charge all the batteries and you got chargers and you got, you know, you got to manage all the data. So you got all the hard drives and yeah, it's crazy. All right. That's spin over Ron. What's going on in Wyoming, my friend. Well, Wyoming, like I said, last time it's been winter, but we've had the last couple of days, we've had some Chinook winds. So it, that warm air comes in and melts the snow and creates a, a bit of a mess on the topsoil. But, um, we're supposed to get another, usually those Chinook winds, those warm winds are followed by another system. So we're supposed to get a little bit more snow. Looking forward to that. And was out this morning chasing mink or trying to find some mink and uh, did put a couple trail cameras out. So hopefully we'll have something to throw in the show notes next week of some of the productivity from the trail cameras. Right on. And that was just today. Right? That was today, yeah, this morning. And, and sorry, and it's the Chinook I, winds. You were out there in your shorts. No, actually, I no. dressed way too warm. I wore, I wore my snow camo, which is is all wool. I didn't. I just wore a t-shirt underneath, and I was still way too hot. So yeah, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to temper the, the layering next time. Well, I I hope the trail cameras help you dial in the timing of the mink so you can get some shots. Yeah, and it, it was a little bit different. You know, we talked about different ways to use those things. And and I think the main thing that I want to see from these trail camera images is just 
the frequency that they're in the area because I don't want to go out and sit there if they're only coming by, you know, once a week and they're, they're hunting along the whole stream bed. But if they're there every day, then yeah, I'll continue to sit. That's smart. Yeah. So we That's didn't talk about it. that one. So that, that was just another way that we can utilize those tools. Right on. So what do we have, Ron, another 30 days and we can go find some grouse? Uh, yeah, it'll, mid-March probably they'll get started. So it's oh, not so too we're far. still in we've January, got, so it's beyond 30 days. It's another six, six weeks. weeks. Yep. Yeah, All but right. I'm ready for that too. Well, it's it's definitely winter here in Ontario, and I'm still home-based. I'm still an editing madman, but I did get out a couple of days this week. Not what I expected to be doing, but I ended up doing whitetails, uh, whitetail deer a couple of hours away from where I live. And why I went out this time of year? Well, they're dropping antlers, or we hope to find that. It's such a rare occurrence. It happens within about a 24-hour period. Sometimes a buck can drop both antlers simultaneously. Sometimes it's an hour apart. Sometimes it's two days apart. I was lucky. I found a mature buck who was touting one antler. And so I got some good images of that a couple of days ago. And I traveled back out there again today. And guess what I was using today, guys? This will blow your minds. <laughs> Uh, well, it's either the pocket or a mirrorless. Ron, what's your what's your wager here? Uh, my guess was the pocket. Yep. Well, I was using a tripod. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? I would not have ever guessed that. So I set up <laughs> in a blind, in a pop-up ground blind. There was so we've got about a foot of snow. It is snapping cold but high winds the past 24 hours and there's this cut cornfield. So it's been blown free of snow. And so my hopes were that the deer were leaving the cedar swamp to go out and act to access the food in the cut cornfield that they could get on the ground still. So I set up in this pop-up blind and wanted to try video on the D850, hoping to get a buck with one antler going by. And I set up, I froze my fingers. I, didn't curse at the camera, but I'll tell you, video, I shot a whole bunch of clips. I had a couple of bucks go past my blind, and the light at times was spectacular because the sun would come out, and you'd have these dark shadows in the forest, and I'd just be like, please step into the light, step into the light. One of them did, but then, anyway, the, the summary of the day was after shooting like 10 minutes of footage, I think I've got 10 seconds I like. <laughs> So that's it was about, fun. That's pretty good odds, I think. It, it was fun. It was fun to do. And I had, I'm, I, there, so there was one buck I saw today that still had both antlers. And I saw a buck who had no antlers. So it was either all in or not. But I'm hoping to get out again uh, tomorrow. Uh, there's a snowstorm coming in the afternoon, which will, all animals are far more active right below a big low pressure system coming in to feed, to prepare to bed down and just hunker down through that adverse weather. So if it does actually hold off till late afternoon or evening, then I'm hoping to get out again tomorrow and, and try the video again with a tripod. Okay. So I've got a couple other things I want to throw in there too. Um, I did set up the Osmo pocket. It synced fine. It registered fine. And you know what guys, it's tiny. It's not just tiny, it's freaking tiny. And I could see how it's it, its design is 
to me. I mean, it's awesome that clearly this will fit in any pocket you have. It's so small. And it, I played with it a bit just in the house and walking around, testing its tracking. I have yet to truly put it through its paces and try an outdoors vlog. But I'm impressed with it so far. I wish, and I, I not sh most people probably won't concur with this, but I wish it was 50% bigger. I'd like it to be a little bigger, just the, the screen a little bigger for manipulation. But it works so far, it works fine. But I did, in the blind today, I took my Osmo 2 going old school to a product that came out only a year ago. How's that old school? <laughs> I took my Osmo 2 and put my iPhone 8 Plus on it. Why did I do that? Because in the blind, one of the trails I'd set up from was close enough, it was about 40 yards away, the wind to my favor. I thought, you know, I could do some vlogging type material with the iPhone on the Osmo 2 to complement what I was doing on the D850, a closer video of a deer if it went by. I was so disappointed with what happened with my phone, my iPhone 8 Plus, I really like the phone. I like all of its features. I bought it last spring when I got the Osmo 2 because I wanted to upgrade the quality of my phone camera to create vlogs. And it does a fantastic job at 4K for social media, YouTube purposes. Knocks it out of the park, no complaints. But today it was freezing cold. And it was fully charged. And I had an iPhone. Once upon a time, I had an iPhone 5. And that thing's battery outdoors. Forget about it. In the winter, don't even take it out of your pocket was what I learned. The 8 Plus should be fine. It died within 15 minutes from a like a 70% charge. That was unacceptable today and unfortunate. So I haven't tried the Osmo Pocket. I've heard decent things about the cold weather battery life. I did buy... Uh, on Amazon, I ordered a, a charger pack that's supposed to be good for up to seven charges. And it's uh, something like, I think it was 41 or 4300 AMH or amps. That So it's a fast, quick charge. So to have that in combination out there, you know, to set the iPhone or in this case, in future, I'm going to the pocket down, it would maybe charge in 20 minutes or maybe less. Who knows? So something to... To think about and plan but that was the day and the iphone i was surprised how quickly it died in the cold temperature i thought it would last longer but it's still a fun day to be out there beautiful beautiful skies and light so the other thing i wanted to talk about before we jump into our regular segments with you guys because you have so much more experience than i do when it comes to facebook i recently started a facebook account and i did it for one reason Mike's eyes are bugging out in surprise. Woo! I did it for one reason, to do Instagram promotions. And I've talked about that on previous podcasts, why it's why I feel I want to try it. And so in order to do Instagram promotions, because Instagram and Facebook are linked, you cannot do it without tapping into a Facebook account. So I set one up. No problem. Did it on my iPhone in, in five minutes or less. And then I went um, on to my... Hold on, though. I think you did it on your iPhone in like 12 months because we've been talking about oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I've, I've been meaning to do this for quite some time because I wanted to give more boost opportunity to the Instagram account. But it really only took me five minutes on my iPhone, so I was surprised with that. But then I realized I had to open the account on my laptop, and then I could, on a computer, I could play with all the settings and and set the parameters to what I'm comfortable with on Facebook because 
Facebook's public domain, different than Instagram in that way. When images go up there, anybody can use them for whatever they want. That's not the case on Instagram from everything I've heard and read, whereas on Facebook it is. So there's some parameters I wanted in play. Mind you, I'm not planning to put many images on Facebook. It's just for this link. But this is where this, it's, it's picking up, guys, and I have a question for you. So as soon as I linked on and put my, my cover photo up there, and that's it, all of a sudden, all kinds of people want to be my friends. And I felt really popular and, and so happy. I had a glow on inside. This is, I'm, you know, everybody wants to be my friend. And there are many people that I knew on there, like you guys, who are very close friends of mine. And I'm like, absolutely, I have to have my tight circle, my tight posse of buddies and family and loved ones as my friends. So no problem. So I have an, uh, one of my editors is a great friend of mine. And I put on to, he was one of the ones that I said, you know, to request a friend uh, because we have friends in common. And the next day he called me, he phoned me up and said, was this actually you, Mark? Are you on Facebook? And I said, yeah, man, it's me. He's like, okay, I'll be your friend. I'm like, well, whoa, how did you, why didn't you think it was me? It's my picture. You saw me. He says, well, you can't always trust what you get as a friend request. And I'm like, slow down a minute. What does that mean? <laughs> so I'm confused a little bit and I'm hoping you guys will shine some light on this for me because this editor of mine said, it's good you're on Facebook. It's a great marketing tool. But at the same time, if there's that much reservedness or reluctancy to, to accept friendships from even people whose names you recognize, you want to confirm it's them, does that mean that there's such a significant chance of being hacked? And why I ask is there are so many friend requests coming in. It's, you know, it's one of two options for me. You either don't accept any of them and just keep, you know, your tight circle of actual friends and loved ones, or you accept all of them and like Instagram, make it a social platform of interaction and marketing. But if you accept, if I go on there and accept these 100 requests and 90 of them are people I don't know of, then is there a chance of being hacked? Is that significant? I throw the conversation to you. Uh, Ron, you're going to have to take that because I have no clue. So when you get a friend request, the first thing I do is go to that profile, scroll down, and if there is one picture and then it says born on this day and married on this day or started this job on this date, and that's all the information that's on there, it's probably a hacked profile, which means, yeah, that person is really out there, but... It's it's one that you don't want to you don't want to accept because they're just trying to start something new and to get that person's friend list. And then they'll go ahead and send friend requests to everybody on that person's friend list as well. So you do not want to accept that if somebody's got a, a fairly prolific profile, there's several images, there's some stories, that kind of thing. And you can kind of verify some of the dates, times, all that or they've been on there for a long time, it's probably legitimate. Uh, but you're going to get, once you friend somebody, there's a chance, you know, eventually you'll get another friend request from them. Those are the ones that you really want to be aware of. Those are definitely uh, bots or spam bots trying to get your information, get your friend list, basically, so then they can they can go ahead and try to attack everybody on your list as well. And this is why 
you know, I work in the banking industry and Facebook started kind of their own PayPal. I don't use that at all. And it's, we have customers that get hacked all the time. And I think as it's often not called that, is it? It's, they would have their own, it's something else. It's yeah. Like, I can't remember. It's like it's Facebook PayPal, pay or something, something else. No. Yeah. 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 It's like Facebook pay PayPal, or something I, like that. PayPal, it seems to be is. I mean, I use PayPal. PayPal is pretty secure. Yeah. I've had no issues. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, it's secure. But Facebook gets hacked often enough that I, I don't trust the payment system that they've put on there. And I can't I see. Somebody could probably comment and tell me what it's called. I can't remember what it's called, but just avoid it at all so, costs. Aside from the payment system, it's just so obviously my editor friend, because I didn't have much content on my page, all I did was put up the photos. Yeah. And he and was that's like, why that's why he was, he was probably iffy on whether or not okay. he should accept. Right. Plus he's information. Like, <laughs> seriously? Somebody just stole his Instagram profile picture and threw it on here. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah, I, that's why he was probably checking okay. with you to make sure. So as far as marketing on Facebook, this is where I'm at this impasse right now. I don't know whether just to keep it tight with the people who I know, and I know their accounts are legit because as you, as you point out, I can see the content on there and, and know it's them. Or is Facebook something that I should be viewing as a marketing tool and just saying yes to 500 friends and then promoting stuff? So if I have a whatever the product might be, I decide I'm going to do a canvas and I want to do 20 of them and I promote it on Facebook. If it's just my small circle of friends, there's no point in me doing that because they have the images they want of mine and and, and it's not what the, our relationship's about perhaps. But if I have 500 friends on there because they enjoy the work that I do that aren't necessarily personal friends, then it could be a marketing tool. But my worry my concern is that by just opening these floodgates and saying yes to everybody who's approaching me to be a friend is immediately my account will get hacked or something. And what's the point to that? Yeah, you, you have to be cautious and they're, you're going to get hacked at some point, but they're pretty good about they're pretty hold good on, about Hold on. So have you been hacked? Oh, yeah. So what did what happened when you got hacked? Did it, it, did it they hurt? Just, they just hurt? It did not hurt at all. They just start okay. sending friend requests to the people on your list. That's basically all that happens. It doesn't change your page, your account in any way. No. Okay. My my son got hacked, and it was it was bad. We had to totally shut everything down. But it's it, just be cautious. And to be honest, okay. So Facebook it's not a marketing has, tool then. Facebook has changed everything enough. Their algorithms. If it looks like you're trying to market something, unless you pay them, that post is going nowhere. Same thing then. You've got to pay to play. Yeah, yep, pretty much. Okay. Well, I'm learning. And, you know, it's something that as we go, we're all at different stages in this game. Whether, you know, I am totally into animal behavior and photographing charismatic megafauna. I love it. But I don't know squat about Facebook. So, you know, as <laughs> That's we... not a bad thing. Well, apparently. So... I mean, as we learn and we can share this information along the way, because, you know, our hopes are some of you listeners out there might be in the same boat and need to consider this stuff as well. Uh, whether it's about gear, animal behavior, destinations or social media, uh, it's all a learning curve because it keeps changing on us. And, you know, some of that content will come up today with the gear as well. So, guys, let's jump into our first segment with the pro tips. Michael, what's your pro tip for today's podcast? 
So I don't think I've talked about this before, but one thing that I'm always worried about is dust on the sensor. Do you guys remember if we talked about that? Ron, you're not we, in your I, head. I, I know, I, we, we have go it, for but it. that's a good tip. Yep. My lenses don't come off. They're, I, I should put crazy glue on the lens to my camera because I, well, they do. Once a year, when it gets bad, I, I have my I, sensors clean. So, I mean, I'm very cautious with that. So it's important to talk about it. So I'm glad you're bringing this up. I'll stop talking. Yeah, so, you know, I'm always worried about it. And, you know, I'm always on the road. And you got to figure, you got to carry the proper tools with you. But then there's different ways to do it, right? So as long as I have the right tools, which would be a little cleaning kit that has the, the sensor cleaning swab that is the size of your sensor. That's the most important part. So you make sure you get the right size. And then it comes with some fluid that you put in there. And then it's a... It's just a process where you swipe it a certain way and you only do it once. And then and then I also bought a little magnifier that's got a light on it. And when you look down in the camera itself and you got a magnifier, you can see the dust on there. So you know really? it's got off. Yeah. So I've never heard of that. I want to hear what that product is because I always did the test where I'd shoot up the uh, aperture, climb it up to F16, F22, and shoot at the sky. And after right. it was cleaned and you'd see whether there are any. Yeah. Yeah. You up. want to do that too. But I mean, if you have that magnifier that you can put yeah, right over the open right camera, you can look at it and see if the shutter's locked up on the old cameras that have the shutter. You just look and the old, the old, did you say the old cameras that have the shutter? Yeah, Is that um, what you said? Are you, I'm are you one of those on. guys now? He's beyond it already. I'm moving yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> wow. My um, feelings are so hurt. Jeez. <laughs> But I still use them. I I'm I have been toying around with the the Sony, so I I kind of like clearly, them. yeah. But here's what I do. So I have these tools. I have the sensor swabs that I have with me all the time. I have the little cleaning solution that you're supposed to drop onto the sensor and then clean it. And then I have the little magnifier so I can see the dust. You identify the dust. You swipe across. You make sure you get it clean. Look with the sensor. And if you can't see any visible dust, you're pretty much good to go. You don't even need to go take a picture because if you can't see it, it's not going to be there, right? And that magnifier is really good because it gives you a, a good view of that whole sensor. And it's got a light built in that magnifier too. So you're lighting up the sensor from the top. You're looking through and then you see it. But here's what I do. When I do that sensor cleaning, it's awesome in hotel rooms, right? Because hotels are constantly have hot water. So I go into the bathroom and I'll turn on the hot water and let the hot water run in there for five minutes so you get it nice and hot and steamy in there and then shut off the water let that steam settle but then all that dust that was in the air has now settled out of the air right so then i'll go in there and clean the sensor and get it done fast and then shut it up and then be be on my way so there's all kinds of little tricks to cleaning the sensor that'll get it nice and clean and you don't have to worry about other dust being because you're putting the camera straight down where dust can fall in there. So you don't want to have a lot of dust in the air. I have done it in Africa where I just had dust on the sensor and I was shooting video and we were shooting high apertures, which is where the dust shows up. And I knew I had to clean it. So we just did it inside of a tent and tried to control the dust. But that's, that's a major no-go situation unless you have to do it. But if you can get into a bathroom or a place where you can enclose all that humidity let all that dust come out of the air because the humid, all that water will settle on the dust particles and then it just falls out of the out of the air and then you pretty much have a dust-free 
environment to go in there and, and clean that sensor up. And I do mine all the time, not all the time, you know, whenever I feel like I need it or if, I, you know, Missy will tell me a lot if I have, you know, when I'm shooting pictures and she's processing, she'll be like, oh, my gosh. And it really shows up if you're shooting the sky a lot or if you're shooting something, if you're shooting at high apertures, then obviously it's going to show up. By high, I mean like at fade or above. So that's when that, that dust starts showing up. Most of the time I'm shooting low, and I'd shoot low on purpose when I'm shooting video just because if there is dust, I don't want, don't want it to show up. I see it on TV programs all the time where you'll see dust on the sensor, and you just know that that person probably didn't know it was there. And I've had that happen before too. So I'm constantly trying to keep it clean, but get yourself cleaner swabs that fit your sensor, the fluid that goes on it, a little magnifying glass, and it's just like a little cylinder thing. I, I will put a link. I think I got mine on Amazon. Put a link to that Amazon uh, purchase and then just do it in a humid area and you should be good to go. And I, I know a lot of other pro photographers that are scared to death to clean their sensors. So I'll actually do it for other people. It's not that hard once you do it successfully once or twice. And then you're, you have a lot more confidence in messing with that sensor. And really, you're not going to mess up the sensor. All these cameras have a filter over the sensor. So you're not wiping the sensor. You're wiping a filter that is sitting over that sensor. So even if you did screw it up, it's not going to be like you're screwing up the actual sensor itself. You're screwing up a piece of glass that is over the sensor that could be replaced. That's an awesome tip. I had no idea about the humidity and how that would help with cleaning it. it makes a huge difference. So I, I've, I have a question. When you're cleaning the sensor and if you see a a spec on it that you have to swab it again. If I remember correctly, now I, I have to admit, I don't clean my own sensors, I'm embarrassed to say. My friend Spencer, who is a pro at it, I pay him 50 bucks once or twice a year. Yeah, but he knocks it out of the park. I've got a clean sensor, I put it on my lens, I'm good literally for a year. Um, I've tried it, I bought a different, I don't know, it's probably a different kit from what you were holding up there, and I smeared and smeared, and I was like, I'm out of here. I drove the hour to where Spencer works, and Spencer looked after it, I went and got a coffee, everything, happy days. But from what I understand, and maybe you can shine some light on this, if there are specs, even one spec after you've done a swab across, you don't just go and dab that spec you have to do the whole swab from side to side right just for our listeners for clarity you've got to do the whole thing again yeah right? and i ran into a sensor that i was doing for somebody that i don't know a couple two or three weeks ago and there was a spot on her sensor that i couldn't get off but it was you know you want to just get like a q-tip and you know scrub that area but you don't want to do that because you're no. just going to mess up that little piece of glass that's in front if if you're doing it wrong and it's just not worth it. So at that point, then yeah, send it to Canon or take it to somebody that does it all the time and messes with, but I, on my own cameras, I have never had a problem that I couldn't or dust that I couldn't remove. Right on. It's something, well, something to pay attention to all the time and just carry that kind of stuff with you. And I tried to, I'm like you, but I end up having to change my lenses a lot more than you do, I think. So, sure. you know, I'm using so many different lenses on so many different projects. It's you, There's no way to get around it. Usually, though, I'll try to bring enough bodies where I can use. Once I get to a location, I set them all up. And then I try not to take them apart the whole time I'm on a location. Right. So that's the best practice. But obviously, that's not everybody has that situation. So you don't. 
you got to be careful. You know, I watch people all the time where you're in the field and somebody will change a lens and they don't pay attention. You know, they'll take the lens off and they'll set the camera, you know, with the opening where the lens mounts at and it's pointing straight up. And it's like, you may or may not get dust in it, but I always, every business. time I change a lens, I just keep it always pointing down. I try to do it out of the wind. You try to find all, you the right situation to change a lens. Yeah, I try to do it very quickly in a controlled environment, but I'd never heard about the humidity tips. So I think that fundamentally makes for an outstanding pro tip this week. And, and we'll put the links in the show notes for the products that you were talking about, too. Yeah. 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 And, you know, that reminds me, I'll go off subject just very briefly, just like that with the sensor pointing up. I mean, you've got to do that in as controlled an environment as possible, changing lenses. It only makes sense to, right, to minimize any dust getting in. How often have you guys seen... I'm not pointing any fingers out there at anybody in the audience. How often do you see photographers walking with their big telephoto on their tripod pointed up to the sky? Even when it's drizzling, I've seen guys walking out of the field. They've done the filmed whatever, and they're walking with the lens pointed to the sky. I don't understand that. Sorry. I, 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 but risky business. I mean, we can clean, clean the the and element on our lenses quite easily. I understand that. But why bother? Why point it up to get raindrops on and stuff? I see that more often. I just, the, the number of times I see it surprises me. I point it out when I see it. I'm like, hey, dude, you should point that towards the ground, you know, just especially because you're really cognizant of it when it is raining. That's mm -hmm. when you do need to tell somebody, hey, you know, and maybe it's that same thing where they've had this great shoot and the high-fiving and you know, you think you're done for the day or whatever, but you're not. Until the light is still as dark, you're not done. So you might as well make sure your equipment's ready to go at all times, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Today was like so, yeah. the snow was just blowing big time. It was about 30, 40 mile an hour winds here. Um, and so I had to keep my lens pointed away from it. Make no sense to let the snow blow into it. But yeah, great sensor tip. Ron, today's pro tip for Mr. Ron Hayes. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a risk, and I'm gonna talk about histograms today, and paying attention to your histogram. If you don't know what a histogram is, it is a little. It it looks like a, a bar on the back of your viewfinder, and you'll have kind of a mountain in the middle. Sometimes it looks like Everest. Sometimes it looks like Denali. Sometimes it looks like the Grand Teton in Wyoming. That doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about what it looks like. What you want to be cognizant of is if on the, the right and left edge, you want the starting point on the right and left edge, the starting point of that, let's say, the base of the mountain, so everybody can understand, that has to start at the bottom. If it's starting on, or ha but say, halfway up the right edge, that means that you've blown out some of the highlights and that's data that you're never going to get back. So what you want to do, increase your shutter speed, decrease your ISO, increase your aperture to bring that back down. So those highlights, and we're going to do a video series on this. So it's going to be explained a lot better than I'm going to be able to do it during the time that we're going to do for a pro tip. But what you're doing is just bringing those highlights back down. So by increasing your shutter speed, you say go from a thousandth to 2,500th of a second, you're bringing those highlights back down. So the base of that mountain in your histogram is going to start 
inside the right edge. If it's off or starting halfway up the left edge, the left edge is your shadows. So if it's starting halfway off up the left edge, you're losing data in those shadows. So you want to decrease the shutter speed then, or aperture, or ISO, and bring that base of that mountain on the right side back inside the right edge. Or like I said earlier, it does not matter what the middle looks like. You just want all of that data in that file to be inside the right edge, inside the left edge, and then you're going to you're going to be able to do whatever you want to with it in post. If it starts part way up the right or left edge, that's just data that's gone and it's not going to be recoverable. So there the histogram there's kind of a mystique about it. It's not anything to be scared of, it's just a tool to show you where your exposure is at. And I will put maybe even put a couple screenshots in the show notes to demonstrate when you would need to make either of those adjustments and and what a histogram looks like when it's properly exposed. Well, and every camera does it, right? So you need to, yep. you can turn it on and off. So if you're going to have it and you're going to look at it on the back of your viewfinder, or sometimes you can even put it in the viewfinder if you're using a DSLR, then, you know, it's good to have. When I shoot video, that's all I use for exposure is, yeah. is a histogram. When I shoot stills i shoot enough stills that i know where i want to be and i don't even use a histogram but it's it's an important tool and you just you what i've always heard it explained is the edges are goalposts and you just don't want anything riding up those goalposts so, you know you the levels if it's if you see those levels up on the left side the left goalpost then yeah your 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 blacks are gone and if it's on the right your highlights are gone so you just need to make sure it's a nice bell-shaped curve that goes between those two goalposts and and you've got all the information in there and you should be able to recover anything at that point as long as it's within that range good tip good tip and, and yeah but i think you nowadays. definitely want to put in the, the the show notes you definitely want to put in some images of a good exposure of yeah that just for clarity and for those of you that might reason- be new listeners the show notes are on our website at wildandexposed.com. Every podcast has a breakdown of the content with things that we've discussed, whether it be imagery or links uh, to other websites that we've discussed during the podcast. So there's much more content available there for your viewing pleasure. Ron, please go on. Well, the reason that I thought about that uh, for tonight's podcast was because this morning when I was sitting there waiting for the the mink, I was set up in stationary i was i was backed up in some cattails so i was camouflage i had kind of a natural blind but the cloud cover the light the ambient light continually changed throughout the day and so utilizing that uh histogram if you're not familiar with how to use your meter utilizing that histogram is a good way so when the clouds come over it's a good way for you to tell where your exposure is at just take one shot check your histogram and then you can make the adjustments uh, that you need to make on so you're properly exposed if that, you know, your target subject does show itself. Awesome. All right. My pro tip for this week's podcast is be prepared to carry your gear. And I don't mean all your gear, but speaking from experience and speaking from being burned 
so many times where I'll see something happening and quickly scramble, grab my big telephoto and go to film whatever it is that I'm after, that I see, the opportunities there, and I leave the memory cards or I leave the second battery or I leave a different lens, my other camera, my Osmo Pocket to tell the story, leave it behind, lock it up, go, and then I end up regretting it. So take 30 seconds, make sure you've got your extra batteries, your extra memory cards, in fact, you know, you should really have a backpack, a pack that you can just put on that everything's there and you can fasten it on, clip it in in two seconds and go. It should be prepared with you. That's assuming you're not already in a hike where you've got your gear. Let's say you're in a vehicle driving somewhere, solely looking for something and there's a photographic opportunity. You need to have your stuff prepared ahead of time to go with you because speaking from all these years of experience, many times I have missed out and you're going to hear this on today's story actually i missed out in a big way by not having a wider lens than what i had with me i only had my big telephoto and got burned on that situation i could have put it in a pocket could have had a small pack brought it with me so plan ahead think about what you're going after on whatever the trip might be whatever it's a day trip a big trip you've got to have your pack your kit ready and you take all the required elements with you because just like we cannot predict wildlife when it's going to show up where it's going to show up what the weather is going to do you cannot predict what gear you're going to need what photographic opportunities are going to present themselves to you so be smart be prepared learn from my mistakes and have a kit ready that's easy to carry along with you that's my pro tip for this week yeah and i think a lot of people so I have a buddy and we'll go, if we're going to go on a hike, you said normally you're prepared if you're going on a hike, but I have a buddy who he doesn't like to carry a lot of stuff. So he'll go with the minimum. Right. And it, I think it ends up burning him half the time just because he'll be saying, Oh, I wish I had a, a small white angle that I could do a whole landscape, you know, or I think you just got to be prepared to take at least the bare essentials. You know, you probably want a wide angle of some sort, a 24 to 70, and then a, a big lens, and make sure you got that stuff with you all the time. I do. Power, I, power bars. What about that? How many times have we gone on a hike where it looks like you're going to go 200 yards, and you're gone half the day? Right. right. And you're starving, and you, you've eaten all the blueberries you can find. But if you had a power bar. <laughs> right. Or. That's if you're in Alaska, and you a drink, find you need water. What do you find? Yeah, no, I, I, so. The prime example for me is when I'm out here doing this work that I'm doing where I'm actually getting paid daily to do it, I can't say, oh, I forgot a battery. I guess I'll, you know, oh, well, it doesn't fly. You've got to be prepared. So, yeah, I have a pack that's ready to go all the time with extra batteries, extra cards, extra cameras. You know, you just have it with you because you just never know. Got the gear. Use it. Be smart. Have it with you. Absolutely. All right. Let's move on to the question of the week. This one comes from Raymond on Instagram. I received a direct message. His question was, hi, Mark. I have a question about gear. Do you have a preferred hiking backpack for your gear that will also work as a carry-on for a plane? I need something to hold a body Four lenses, hopefully a bigger one. Uh, currently, his biggest is a Canon 100 to 400 millimeter. 
Uh, really right stuff tripod and full size i would ideally like a holder thanks so you know it's something to be aware of and when you're traveling when a plane factors into it, it it is a game changer because you you know most of us i know it's different for michael because the amount of gear he has to carry on a video shoot is either impressive or insane depending on how you look at it and he cannot carry it on without taking a whole posse of people with him and needs to check it in very secure rigid pelican cases but for wildlife photographers who don't have a ton of video equipment you know it's best to carry it on versus packing it in your bags unless of course you go the route that michael doesn't have that rigid hard pelican case that's locked and very secure that way i used to well, i have several uh, low pro bags that I love. They're very durable, uh, weather resistant, uh, um, a lot of interior compartments that just simply Velcro in and out. And you can adjust it to whatever cameras you have and whatever lenses and batteries and satellite rescue devices, whatever you need to put in there, you can make it work. But my low pro bags that I had at the time, well, as of three years ago, uh, the big one I had was too big. So a friend of mine suggested Think Tank. The, the backpack that I use now is an airport antidote version two Think Tank. So it's quite compact. It does not facilitate a tripod. So that's something that when I'm taking a tripod for video, it goes in my luggage, in my check baggage for planes. And for me, I use a big duffel bag or a big hockey bag because it's quite pliable. I can put all kinds of gear and I can put boots in it and layers of clothes, uh, sleeping bag stuff if required, tents, and pack the tripod or anything that could be at all damaged in the middle of the bag. That's the way I do it. The Think Tank has been fantastic. It's just a black backpack, so it's nondescript, doesn't look that sexy, but has all the compartments, fits my MacBook Pro laptop perfectly as well as all the components. So currently that's what I go with. Guys, what, what are you, my, aside from Michael and all of his check baggage? Ron, no. let's, let's, let's jump over to Ron. <laughs> I have my big pack that I usually take when I'm, when I'm not flying is uh, the Low Pro 600. And it is, it's very large. It's probably built a little bit better for straight up backpacking. Uh, but that thing, it does not take very long to, to have 60, 80 pounds in that thing. If you get all your gear loaded up, it'll hold a 600 millimeter um, that's not attached. And then it'll hold several bodies and several other lenses. And then it does have uh, kind of a sleeve in the back that you can slide your tripod legs into and it'll carry your tripod as well. The one that I take when I'm flying is, is you covered. It's just a little guru bag and you can, uh, you can take a long lens. I just take a, a zoom, a long zoom, the 200 to 500. I know it'll fit uh, the Canon 200 to 400 as well. And I used to take my 500 millimeter that was not attached to a body. I could fit that in there as well. So it's there's and there's several options as too. So you can you can buy the option that fits you better, and it is adjustable. I think they all pretty much are now. But that's that's what I'm going with now. I was uh, I was looking at a couple bags. There's a couple of them that are just crazy right now. On B and H, I mean, seven hundred and fifty dollars for a photo backpack with <laughs> it, camera. 
Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? <laughs> with, with a complimentary GoPro, right? right. GoPro 7's hidden in some pocket. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're, okay. the sky's the limit as far as options out there right now. But I think I would stick to, you know, companies like Gurabag and uh, Lowpro and Think Tank, I think spend a little bit more or have spent a little bit more time, have a little bit more history thinking about the photographer and trying to improve all the time. Um, so I think those are those are good go-to options to begin with. I like I like the low pro. I mean, uh, they're rugged bags and f- very versatile for different weather conditions. And that's yeah. was my go-to until this think tank. I take it everywhere. I mean, it doesn't look like it should be able to go, but I'll take it up for sheep, everything, and I'll set it down on any type of landscape, and it's done fine. You know, it's got side holder pockets, uh, but drinks on the sides and lo- lots of. Mm. Uh, flexibility for the amount of kit that we carry nowadays which is getting smaller and smaller and it easily fits into any airport luggage check for carry-on that's right. a big thing used to be my low pro for years i knew it wouldn't so every time i go check through to get on the plane i make sure that it's on my back and i am big and broad and i'm facing the person who's scanning my boarding pass and i say thank you and they can't even see my pack and yes it, <laughs> you know it might have weighed 50 pounds and it was hidden behind me, and it might have been three or four inches too big to get into that luggage size metal device you have to fit them into. Whereas a think tank easily fits in, so there's no stress. And I'm sure, like you said, the other brands, uh, Guru and Lowpro, have models that fit that as well. So I think it's just a matter of, of finding a bag you like, but definitely there's a difference in quality, and you pay for a bit of that, as you do with any of the gear we talk about. We do not want to be hiking up for sheep no matter what brand of backpack we're wearing and have the bottom tear out of it, right? Who wants that? So all that bear in mind. I think I've got, I could talk about this for a whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to jump into the next segment. And still still not get through everything. Right. I actually choose the bag that I'm going to use based on the plane that I'm going to fly. And when I, you know, we do 75,000 miles a year, right? So we're flying a lot and, I just know which planes will accept which bags, and I just have, I'll just pack accordingly. And then the other thing I think that he didn't mention that you've got to kind of keep in in mind is you got to have a computer these days, right? So you kind of should have a backpack that will you could put a computer in as well. So it's something that I I take the tripod out. It's a must. The tripod's not going to go ever. Mm. No, it's going to go plane. in a check bag. Just like you said, there's just no way. And you're better to use a big duffel bag that you can wrap clothes around it and protect it and knock on wood. But airlines are pretty good about losing stuff, not losing stuff nowadays. Right. So the best thing is, is just know that it's going to get there and try to select a flight that's a nonstop. So you don't, you reduce the, you eliminate the chances of that stuff getting lost and then you put it there. And then what I do, so let's say you're flying a CRJ 700. That's a small, like they have two seats on each side. It's a smaller plane. I know that uh, that backpack that you were talking about, Mark, may not fit in the overhead compartment. There is it an overhead compartment, no, but it's probably it's not going to fit. It doesn't. It has to go with my feet. And that's the one plane where, it, it, yeah, it does fit under, but yeah, and I'm a little cramped with my feet tucked up uh, in a right. bit of a fetal position there. Yeah. Right. The only so what I do, I know that a Pelican 1510 will fit in there. 
So I'll pack all my gear in a Pelican, but then I'll pack my backpack in my duffel bag. So that when I get to the location, I have my duffel bag. And then if for some reason they say, no, you can't, you're going to break the overhead compartment and then you're going to put this whole plane on hold because maintenance is going to have to come fix that door before we take off. Don't be that guy. If, if it's in a hard case, you, I'm, I used to be paranoid about it, but I'll gate check that Pelican and with all my gear in it and just send it. And then if it gets put back in the luggage in a hard Pelican case, your chances are pretty good that it's going to be fine. So there, I mean, maybe this is a whole podcast for one of our pro tip podcasts where we just talk about, cause I have setups for everything and the ways that, that I do all that stuff with even just the inserts, I always have extra inserts so that when I get there and I want to readjust that pack to fit a certain thing or do something, it's, it's huge. So traveling is, is part of the game with this whole deal and the best way you can do it. You just want to be most effective based on where you're flying, what you're flying to, how much gear you're taking, and all of that jazz. So, I have just written down Travel Pro Tip Podcast. Stay tuned, audience. That's coming your way. That's a great idea. And, yeah, good, we talk about... Good tips. Are you going to keep going? Or no, no, going? let's just stop there. But, I mean, no. I, what I'm using right now is the Streetwalker. The Think Tank Streetwalker. Just... If that's something that you want to look at, it would fit everything that he's talking about putting in, except for a tripod. It yeah. does have a little pocket to put a tripod on, and you strap it on the outside. So I guess you could do that. That might be the new version of mine. So that's got wheels on it, right? No, this one's just Doesn't? a backpack. It's it's about oh. the size of yours only. It may be just a touch bigger. Okay. But it accepts it. But yours it, it accepts a laptop too, right? Yes. Yeah, the yeah. top compartment outside is an external sleeve that's very secure. Yeah, and it yeah. slips on the top. Yeah, and yours is just a sleeve. I don't think it's padded, right? It's not significant. There's a bit of padding. It's thick, but not not padded. I wouldn't want to set it upside down on the top, you know, or, or be abrupt yeah. with it that way. But it's it's heavy material. So and that's the difference. This one is padded enough where you could just set it right on the laptop, and I think it'd be fine. Ooh, put so that in the show notes so I can check it out. <laughs> Streetwalker, it's actually Missy's backpack. So, <laughs> think tank Streetwalker, that could be the go-to. There you go, Raymond. Thank you for the question of the week, and I want to encourage all of our listeners to send in any questions that you may have, no matter whether you're a beginner or an expert. And we will do our best to answer them all, and we'll feature one on each podcast as question of the week. All right, guys, let's jump into Alaska, one of our favorite destinations for obvious reasons amazing landscape wealth of wildlife time of year is important depending on what you're going after but in today's podcast michael ron and i are each going to feature a story one of our most epic days in the field um alaska i i could honestly say there's something that happened just about every day i've been in alaska that i could put on this list and you know there I've, I've got a lot of great memories in the the rockies in the states as well and the in the western mountains that would go on on a list as well but those are other podcasts ron those are other podcasts and alaska it's just one of those destinations that if you're a wildlife photographer at some point you have to go because there are so many different things to see in alaska so many things that i still want to see and experience 
and you know it, it's a lifetime endeavor i think to to be able to check off everything that i've got on that list uh for alaska but you know the one of the one of the trips that i wanted to do uh was the brown bears in alaska the coastal brown bears and it was something that you know michael and i had known each other for i don't i don't even know four or five years now just as acquaintances and then the last few years Obviously, we've gotten to know each other a little bit better. But one of the things that he kept kind of planting in my mind was this trip to Lake Clark, Alaska, that, you know, it was it was just one of those destinations that it's got everything you want because you you have the opportunity to be very up close and personal with these bears. Uh, you know they're going to be there. They're there to feed on the clams when the when the tide goes out and they're there to, to feed on the sedge. When the tide's in, they go back in the sedge flats and they'll feed. The boars come in because the the sows with cubs will show up. And, well, all the sows will show up, actually, whether they have cubs still or not. And so the boars show up just looking for opportunities for breeding. So it's just a phenomenal destination. The I had several things on the list, and I'll be honest with you. The biggest one, the biggest reason that I went is because Michael and Missy and Barrett, who we also went with, they all three had shots of these the sow and two cubs that were taking a nap laying on this log. And I thought, man, that is a shot that I would love to have. And wouldn't you know it, the first day we show up, it's raining. See the same sow with the same two cubs. She goes right back to the same log, and all three of them have a nap on this log. Unfortunately, it wasn't right there together, but we did get that later. Didn't uh, you with call a different that? sow. Didn't you request it or something? No, that you this just was put that out there. Or was that before? This that? was before we kind of got in the got in the rhythm of calling our shot. Ah. <laughs> that was actually the the first afternoon that we were there. One of the things that I wanted to do while we were there because we had the opportunity to go shoot puffin um, on this island. So you catch a catch a boat, go around to this. Uh, away from Lake Clark a little bit to the north. And there's an island there that's got a lot of puffin, um, tufted puffin, I think they are, on the cliffs. And so you can go photograph puffins. So I thought that might be a nice change up, get another species on the on the trip. So I was going to go photograph these puffin. And these guys started giving me a hard time. You're going to miss, you know, guaranteed if you go out to photograph the puffin, you're going to miss the best best day of shooting these bears. And so I stayed. I caved into peer pressure, which I try not to always do. But in this case, it was definitely the best day we had with with the Bears. And it was uh, Barrett, you know, was leading the group that we were with. Barrett has guided up there. He knew those Bears. And he just kind of, he saw these Bears way to the south. And it was an area that we hadn't really been in. And it just kind of instinct, he thought we ought to probably go check them out because they were adoles- they were three adolescent bears and they were really active. So they were out clamming and we went down there and just every kind of behavior you could imagine. One of them found a, it was a flatfish of some kind. I don't know if it was a halibut or flounder, what it was, but picked it up and then the chase was on. They all wanted that piece of fish, that fish head that, that they found. And they were just playful. The backgrounds, we got some actually some volcanoes in the background. I think it was Mount Augustine, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that we got in the background with these bears. And 
it was just an unbelievable day. You didn't want to leave the beach. I had gone up there thinking my goal was to have come home with less than 3,000 shots. Yeah, it didn't happen. Not <laughs> even close. <laughs> we were up there for five days, and it, it wasn't even close to hitting that 3,000 shot mark. I just wanted to be real, uh, uh, what would you say, intentional on the shots that I did take. But the behavior happened so fast and furious that I came home with a lot more than that. By far and away thus far, that's the the best day in Alaska that I've had. And just everything just kind of came together, you know, and we've all had those days, but that was it for me. Those are amazing animals of coastal brown bears in Alaska. I mean, it's something on most wildlife photographers' yeah. wish list to have that luxury of experience. Yeah, and I, you know, quite honestly, the other highlight of that trip, and we talked about it before, was we got out and we kind of got stuck by the tide. And there was 15 bears out in the sedge flats because the tide was in, so the bears pushed off the beach. And we were stuck, and we just all kind of one by one started nodding off and took a nap out there with with all these bears and knowing that we had somebody that was paying attention staying awake but that was phenomenal that whole trip that reminds me of another story that i'm not going to tell today but not everybody stays awake i've i've learned <laughs> in that kind of situation i i had two buddies on a trip once and I, they've proven to be uh, not trustworthy in that regard everybody was asleep but that's the story for another podcast Lake Clark's an amazing place, an amazing national park. I have not been there in person, and I know Michael and Missy have been uh, a few times, and you have been. There is a book, uh, One Man's Wilderness, an Alaskan odyssey, written by Sam Keith about the journals and photographs of Richard Pernecki. And I hope I pronounced that last name correctly, but it is a phenomenal read. For any of you out there, look it up. Uh, it's a this man built a log cabin on a lake in the interior of Lake Clark National Park. And it's his journal back in the day of that experience and living there by himself with this wildlife around. It's an epic tale. It is a huge hit in Alaska for anybody who goes there and realizes what this story is about. So look it up online on Amazon, wherever you buy your books. One Man's Wilderness, an Alaskan Odyssey by Sam Keith from the Journals and Photographs of Richard Pernecki. I must read for anybody who is drawn to Alaska, the wilds of Alaska. So my story, unless you want to go, Michael. No, you go right ahead. By, no, I can wait. I can wait. No, I, I can I, wait. I, Let's hear yours. All right. All right. It might bring up a different one for me. I've had so <laughs> many amazing experiences over the past 20-some years on my travels. And I've Alaska, I've been there many, many, many times. And... This day stands out, the day I'm going to tell you about stands out as one of my favorites for a variety of reasons that I hope will be obvious by the time I finish the story. So it was my second time in Alaska, and I had a good friend, Bob, from Washington State, accompany me on this trip. I miss you, Bob. I wish you hadn't given up on wildlife photography. You are a talented wildlife photographer, but I know the other things come up in, up in life. And I had two trips with Bob in Alaska, and we had so much fun. This day obviously began at daybreak, as every day does when you're out in the wilderness trying to collect wildlife images in a truly amazing place. 
And where we were is where the taiga forest and the tundra meet. So two habitats converge. And when that happens, there's usually an abundance of wildlife. But before I start telling the story that day, let me back up and tell you about the beginning of this trip. So Bob, being his first time in Alaska with me, that was his first time in Alaska, we'd spent several days looking hard for wildlife, and it was beautiful. It was in autumn, early September, late August, you get more high-pressure days. Um, so not as much rain, and by high pressure, then you have clear skies or close to it or high cloud, and you can see mountains to potentially put in the background. Clear skies are best for that, obviously. The tundra is also changing very rapidly from green to vibrant reds and yellows. So we had looked hard and our, we had taken in so much photogenic landscape. It was amazing, but we're not landscape photographers. We dabble in that and you can't help but at times, but how do we stop and do a landscape when around the next corner could be the biggest bull moose of our life or a whole bunch of caribou or a wolf that you could actually put in that landscape? That's where my heart's at. So I keep going around the next corner and not stopping for the landscape for the most part. So we hadn't had much success and Bob was getting frustrated because everything was there except the animals and why weren't we having success? On this particular day, the tables turned. So we got up, we were, we what we would do is we'd drive this back dirt road through this remote wilderness and we'd find high points and they might be 200 yards from the road, they might be half a mile from the road and you hike to the high point with your binoculars sit down and spend an hour, whatever you feel like, eating blueberries and scanning as far as your eye can see to see an animal and hopefully see something. Then you could perhaps figure out a way, generate some strategy on how to get closer and get photographs. On this morning, after a few days of no luck, we go to a high point, we glass, and there are nine, nine mature bull caribou. And so we mapped out the wind direction and very carefully approached them. And when we got within a sight line, whenever they'd stop feeding or doing anything and look at us, we'd stop too and pretend like we didn't care about them. And when they resumed their activity, we'd go closer and closer until about 40 minutes later, we were within telephoto range. And what happened next was magical that morning. These nine bull caribou accepted us. After about 15 minutes of us being in proximity of them, 50, 60 yards, they didn't care about us anymore and they went about their interactions. Now, as far as animal behavior, part of that could be because there's a group of them. So there's more confidence, there's more eyes, uh, as opposed to one individual animal that might be more nervous. So they accepted us and they went about browsing on this autumn, blissfully vibrant, colorful tundra. And they went about thrashing shrubbery because they just shed the velvet from their antlers and it was game on antler time and they would spar with each other. And it was just a crazy, amazing experience to photograph them because you'd look at one big bull, he'd be doing something, or maybe he'd be standing majestically with a nice background. You'd look off to the left and something else, another bull's doing something different. So it was a smorgasbord of photo opportunity that we did for about three hours, and then they bedded down. And when they all bedded down, we had so much material that we left. We hiked back a couple of miles to the road, had a snack, you know, high-fived, told the stories, almost hugged it out. Right, Bob? And 
started cruising and going check some more country. I mean, that was good enough for the day. Really, nine amazing bull caribou interactions, behavior, mountain backgrounds, fall color. So, you know, the rest of it's bliss. We're driving along looking for another high point. Obviously, we're going some distance to look for another vantage. We'd only gone a few miles and went out short hike and glassed a three-year-old bull moose. Now, this habitat had changed. It was a little higher elevation, so it wasn't as red as the berry shrubbery. It was a brownish fall color, but was still nice. Decent three-year-old bull moose, beautiful light. Another thing about that time of year up there is the light doesn't get super harsh because of how far north we are. So it gives us more play through the day for great photo opportunities as far as the quality of light. So same thing, we map out the wind direction, we pack up our gear. Like I said in my pro tip, should have brought everything. Raycroft didn't. Raycroft brought his Nikon to two to 400 F4 that he had at the time because he was just about the bull moose. And we mapped out the wind direction, hiked in, got close enough to the bull, and he relaxed, got used to us. And we spent about another half mile hiking with him, photographing him as he fed, and, you know, his body changed position, different backgrounds, whether it's just the blue sky or the mountain. This bull actually was in my in my moose book. He's got the one, the two-page spread that has the longest beard on this young bull. It's like practically dragging on the ground, the moose beard or bell that's in, under his chin. So we followed him for about half a mile. That was good enough, right? No. You could see for miles in this country, but... Honestly, the topography is all over the map. You're up and down in these little kettle ponds all over the place. There could be an animal you're not aware of 100, 200 yards away. And that's what happened. This bull found a buddy. He found another bull that was the same age. So Bob and I hung back. And these two bulls, within minutes of meeting, went up to each other and started sparring. So mind-blowing part two for the day. I'm zooming in, I'm getting these great shots, great light with nice color of these two young bulls sparring, testing out their dominance or strengths or weaknesses. Neither are going to be successful breeding, breeding bulls this year. They're too young, but they're up and comers and they're, they want to play in the game. Here's where I dropped the ball on this trip because I just had my two to 400 on this hike and I was getting great close-ups. I was able to zoom out, get both animals, whole bodies, zoom in, get a bit closer Get a bit of cloud. You could be rim themselves on a, on a hillside and get some cloud. I look over at Bob. He switched out from his telephoto. He's got a wider lens on, smaller lens, and he killed it. He took a picture of them and had the whole Alaska range, and they're small in the picture, in the whole range. Breathtaking image. And, in fact, when he, uh, somebody had seen this online and people had questioned whether it was real. And it was real. So it was amazing. They sparred for about 20 minutes and then separated and then just like, that was fun. And then they went their own ways, walked apart. And just like that, Bob and I left them and hiked back to the vehicle as well. So part two of the day was done and we're happy enough beyond. It's made up for the previous three days and more. So we started driving along this road. It goes forever. We're going along. We go about another... 15 to 20 miles and we're watching typically like i said we've got to go to a high point hike out in glass and then decide a plan of approach 
to get to animals that we might see across the tundra. In this case, we rounded a bend on a hill, and when we came around in beautiful light was this huge grizzly boar about 80 yards off the road. I quickly pulled off the road, killed the engine, rolled those down, quiet, because he was coming our way. I mean, what are the odds? Will he keep coming? He did. He just kept coming. And there's a lot of brush and debris in the way, so we couldn't get any images of him as he approached, just due to the, the lay of the land there. It was a bit of a valley hillside, and these willows were taller than him, but we could see him moving along through. He came 40 yards from the road, looked at us, stood up, and sent Mark a tree. Mind blowing. Just, you know, throw the cameras out the window. World's best day. Sent Mark the tree, got down on all fours, walked across the road and disappeared. You know, and so it was the perfect trifecta day in Alaska. And these pictures, like I've said before, will be in our show notes so you can go and check those out. But that was one day, you, you know, in the wilderness, wildlife photography, even in places like Alaska where there's an abundance of animals, there are many days that nothing happens and you just have to take in the landscape. And, you know, in the rest of our trip, Bob, bless his heart, man, my good buddy, he got, I mean, he was just taken in the landscape. The rest of it was gravy. And it's so beautiful to be up there. Obviously, it's best when this happens on day one of the trip. You can check it off. You have the material and you can relax and enjoy landscape. But at this point, um, it was a game changer and an amazing, made for an incredible day on, on that trip. That's my one of my very best days in the wilderness in Alaska. It's pretty so good you day. said that was his first day, first, first trip, time, first trip in Alaska, right? Yes. So I think anytime <laughs> I take somebody up there for the first time, uh, it right. always <laughs> seems to be awesome, right? It's just, I don't know, like Alaska unfolds for you. I don't know. Maybe other people have different experiences or maybe somebody that's never been there goes there and they're like, what are you talking about? I didn't see anything or it rained on me for two weeks or whatever it is. But I'll tell you, more times than not, when I've taken somebody up there for the first time, it seems to just kind of unfold and make for a really awesome experience. Could be. You know, look at Lucky Luke. I took him. <clears throat> we did a podcast with Luke, my wildlife biologist friend, last summer. And, and his first trip up there with me, it was unbelievable. That that's a that's another story for another podcast. But I think there's something to that. But one thing, you know, it's hard working in this environment and you do have to be really patient and it will pay off. But the one thing I've loved about the far north is it's never I never finish a trip with material that I had anticipated. It's always been different. And there are always surprises. Pleasant surprises have always unfolded. You know, the and Guaranteed many days without anything, but then it makes up for it in ways that couldn't have predicted. So no matter whom I've taken over the years, that's always seemed to happen. But yeah, it's I've taken a lot of people for the first time. Maybe that's maybe, <laughs> maybe there's something to that between each of the kids, friends of mine, Pilly, Luke. I mean, yeah. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Nobody else can come up for a second trip. Oh. Yeah, you just always got to take somebody new, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those deals. It's Part of it is the time of year, too. So you've got to kind of time it just right. There's been, like you say, you can go two weeks where it's nothing. Well, it where it's rained the whole two weeks. 
yeah, what species you want to see and where you're going. But right, definitely, there's seasonality that way. Well, we were lucky in July last year. I mean, July can be rainy. We had great weather. Right. And yeah, and it depends on what weeks. part of the state you're in, too. So you just never know. I mean, do your research, figure it out. Find listen the best to, listen to podcasts. Best, listen to our podcast. I mean, we'll do... We'll probably do so many Alaska stories that people would be tired of it. But who gets tired of that? That's, well, I don't. I can tell no. you that. It's it's something we will consistently weave in because it's an amazing location. Anywhere in the northern wilderness is really, but I mean, Alaska has the coastal opportunities too, as Ron was pointing out, that are so different than the interior. So the, the diversity of wildlife and habitat there, within a day's drive, is amazing. Right. And I'm and, excited to I'm excited to get up northern Alaska as well and get into some of that complete Arctic tundra up north and some of the species available up there. So it's just it's just it's got everything to offer. It really does. I am not gonna sell very many muskox pictures when I get them, I'll tell you that. I don't get it's not a big market, but I can't wait to meet one. Yeah, right. exactly. Well, Michael, take us on an adventure of one of your best days in Alaska. So, man, there's so many, and, and you had actually jogged my memory on this one. So I think, and I hope I haven't said it before, so let's just kind of get into it, and everybody can let us know via the I want, you website know, I've heard or Instagram this story. or whatever. I want to hear this. I've heard this story. <clears throat> I'm confident we haven't covered it, but I'm happy to hear it again and again. So, yeah, totally. So, and it ends up being more of an experience. I mean, obviously, we're out there trying to photograph stuff, but perfect scenario never unfolded for photos. But we're driving down the road, me and a buddy, and we're in Alaska. Again, it's just these remote dirt roads. And there aren't very many, but there are enough where you can get out and get away. And if you don't want to pay for a flight to go into the deep wilderness, this is the way to do it. So we're cruising down the road, not really expecting much. It's like you said earlier. You leave early, right? You just want to be out in the woods. And, and if there is something, you want that really pretty light. Cruising down through this Tioga forest, and we see a white bird sitting up in this tree. And it just a white bird in a forest like that, where we're at in Alaska, just doesn't really compute. Unless it's a color phase of a hawk or a falcon or it could be an owl or whatever. So obviously it gets our attention. We stop. We look with binoculars. And lo and behold, it's a jeer falcon, which is kind of cool. And they're in that area. So not necessarily in the forest. They generally are found up in the higher alpine areas or the tundra areas where they hunt easier in that, that habitat. So it really caught us off guard. It was cool to see. You know, not everybody gets to see a jeer falcon. So it was one of those things that was pretty awesome. And then we're starting to see a bunch of little camp robbers. Or if anybody knows what a camp robber is. Um, Clark's also known as a Clark's Nutcracker, right? Or a Gray Jay. I think it's both. Those, those, those are two different. Yeah, no, they but both, they're both, they both do that. They both. They look yeah. very similar too mm -hmm. to one another. So we started seeing a bunch of those birds, and then we also saw a lot of magpies that are flying around. And so this is all just adding up into this. This is weird. There's a lot of birds flying around. There's a jeer falcon down here in the forest. What's going on? And then we start paying attention to these magpies flying by, and they're flying by with meat in their beaks. 
So then we're like, oh, hmm, where's that coming from? And then out of nowhere, we're standing on the road next to this vehicle. The wolves start howling. And then it's like game on, right? It's like, oh, my God. And they're close. We don't know how close, but they're close. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, this is going to be awesome. We might actually see a wolf. And seeing a wolf is, I don't know. I don't know how many wolves you guys have seen. I've been fortunate enough to see quite a few over the years, but it's over the years, right? So it's not like something you can go and be guaranteed. I would say you're much more guaranteed to see a bear than you are a wolf if you go to Alaska. You can go to out of Anchorage and see a black bear pretty easily. And I was up there this year right out of Anchorage and saw grizzly bears. So you can see a bear pretty pretty easily. But a wolf is a, a different story. But I've, I've seen enough where it's, you just want to see more. You just want to have that experience. And, and they're howling and they're probably within, well, we don't know, but we're thinking less than a half a mile. And it's just so exciting. We can't contain ourselves because they keep howling and so we're like we just got to go check it out there's meat coming out of the woods in the on the beaks of these these birds flying by there's a jir falcon there's something going on in there so carefully we go in very 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 slow we got our cameras we're walking in there and just slowly kind of making our way through this little tundra kind of forested area with really kind of mushy mushy type tundra soil underneath us and we're walking along and then all of a sudden we see a wolf runs in front of us and then another wolf runs in front of us the other way so it's like there's I, we didn't ever know how many there were but there were several wolves in there just moving around and they pretty much just moved out they didn't ever sit down and look at us or stop and look at us or anything they're just constantly moving through but not scared of us they were just moving it just seemed like that little pack was just moving around within this area so we keep going a little bit further and we're just taking our time we probably took an hour to cover this half a mile just because you walk a little bit you stop you look and you might see a wolf walking off in the distance or you know through the trees or something nothing that was a photographic opportunity but you know it's a wolf you can just tell by it walking in there we finally get into this deep part of the forest we're looking and we're trying to figure out what's going on. It's very, very dark timber kind of thing. It was just an area where the trees were just growing up huge. We get in there and I kind of think what I, I see is an antler. So then, of course, it, of me, there's a dead animal in here. So, yeah, we, we get kind of concerned because I think I see an antler in there and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's well, it's time to stop. Because if a grizzly bear brought this animal down, then... It, you know, that's something you don't mess with. You just don't go in there and do that. So we were far enough away where, from the antler where we're not going to, you know, it just didn't feel dangerous at all. So we're looking with binoculars and just studied it, studied it, studied it. Finally, I determined there's two antlers. And what it was were two antlers that were locked together. So they were laying down. You can picture two animals laying on their side, and these moose had locked antlers. And what had happened is they died in this fight. They locked the animals. The the antlers were locked together, and they couldn't pull apart. And they wore themselves out and died. So once we figured out that this is not a situation where an animal killed it, or a wolf or a bear killed these this moose, it was a uh, the moose killed the moose. We felt a little bit more confident about going in there just to check it out, right? That's like a once-in-a-lifetime deal to see something like that. So we go in a little bit further, not 
we're just not marching right up to it. We just tried to get a different vantage point just to actually see what went on. And sure enough, it was these two monsters. Bull Moose said it must have gotten a fight. It was during the rut. They had locked antlers. And it's happened quite a few times. If you go to, I think there's a place in Anchorage where they actually have a set of antlers that are locked together and they're mounted that way. They're almost impossible to pull apart. We we went up there and identified this this that's exactly what happened. You could see where the wolves had eaten the 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 back end of one of them, and pretty much had left the other one alone. So we were thinking, well, maybe that was a situation where the one died, but the other one wasn't di- dead yet and could defend itself even being locked and you know by kicking or whatever. And I don't know, you know, you just come up with. We didn't see it. We don't know what went on exactly, but it was just. It's an amazing sight, and it's it's a sad deal for the moose, right? Because you're thinking, how would you like to die locked against your worst enemy at the moment, right? You're just, there's no way out. It's just, they, they locked, they couldn't pull apart, they exhausted themselves, and they must have just fell over, and then you got wolves on you that are, you know, it's crazy. I just, it was just one of those mind-blowing things. So we was pretty much done. The wolves were not in the area, not close by, not around where we could see it. And we thought, you know what? We should probably, there was a hill not too far away that we knew we could get up on top of and with binoculars, we could sit there and watch and see just in case a wolf did come back in, we might be able to get a shot. But again, this is dark timber, so it's really tough. It's like there were one or two opportunities to see in there from this distant point to see if we could see a wolf in there. So a buddy of mine and myself, we decided, okay, let's just sit on this hill. We'll sit here all day if we have to, just to even see a wolf. And lo and behold, here comes a little, a young wolf. It was a, a young of the year. And he went right to, he or she, I don't know, went right to that, those animals that were laying down that were dead and were kind of standing on them, walking around them, looking, and then the rest of the pack had left because they had eaten quite a bit of that one moose and who knows where they went. So it was super cool. And, you know, being in that situation, you're like, so you really want a picture if you can get one, but we're so far away. I'm like, ah, there's just no way, but you don't want to leave because when you get to see this, right? So we, we stayed there longer. We stayed there almost, well, this had been probably three or four hours by this point. And I just got really antsy and I'm, I really, at that point, I'm shooting video too. So I grabbed my video camera and I, I closed probably a hundred yards and I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to lay underneath this tree where I had a decent view of, of the, the antlers, but that little young wolf had moved off. We couldn't see it. And I'm laying there just trying to, I no tripod, no nothing. Cause I had to be pretty mobile. So I just grabbed the camera and I was laying it on the ground and I thought, well, let's see if we can get a shot video shot of a, of a wolf coming in to that whatever your carcasses and uh probably laying there for an hour and something just told me i should i'm laying there kind of flat on the ground with the camera in front of me and i got it set up so i can look through the viewfinder like laying on my elbows with my body flat out and i look around behind me and that young wolf is sniffing my boot behind me and um, at that point it's like what do you do you know it was a young wolf, so I did not feel threatened at all. And it was just this surreal experience to have this wolf just be right there with me. And it was just as curious as I was. The wolf ended up 
came around the side of me, probably 10 feet away, laid down and started, you know what a dog does when it gets its jowls, when it's trying to clean its jowls on the sides and it's rubbing the jowls on grass or in a yard or something. This wolf did the same thing on the tundra. It was just trying to clean itself, just looking at me and almost playing. Like, hey, come on, check this out. Come over here with me and we'll go check these moose out. It was just quite the experience. I couldn't get any footage because he's just far enough over to my side where I couldn't, you know, obviously I didn't want to move fast. I didn't want to jump up. I didn't want to startle the wolf. So I was thinking, well, I'll just kind of try to scoot this camera over. I didn't really get anything. I shot stuff, but I don't think there was anything that was stellar. But it was just an experience. I mean, how many times do you have a wolf that is actually that close and you don't feel threatened? You don't feel, I don't know, a lot of people are probably going to think I'm freaking crazy, but it was, was one of those say, situations. I going to say, don't try this at home. Yeah. <laughs> right. But sometimes magical things happen in wilderness, right? Yeah. It's not something we're encouraging, but we love, you know, it's, I love hearing your story of it because of, of what unfolded that day and what you're able to experience with that wolf. Yeah, and that wolf stayed there for another couple of hours. I ended up, I, I just realized that there's just no way to get the shot. Let's leave it alone. Let's back, I backed back off and we watched that young wolf stay there. You know, obviously those, those little ones, will, the, the pack will just let them stay wherever they're at and they'll come back eventually. And that pack was probably going to feed on those two moose for who knows how long, mm -hmm. right? So we saw that wolf and watched it for a couple of hours, just moving in and out of the trees and by the carcasses but again it was kind of so far off and so such dark timber there was no real appropriate way and that was cell phones were out of of course but the quality of the pictures weren't that great so it wasn't even on your mind radar nowadays if that would happen you'd have so many good shots just on an iphone just uh, just to illustrate what was going on but i don't think we really even took that many and you know when we first found the the carcasses we didn't we were like, well, let's get out of here because we don't want to interrupt what's going on, what nature's going on. So we, I don't even think we took any still images of those antlers being locked together right there. I don't know. I went back in there the year afterwards and I found those antlers. Are you kidding? Keep going. Yeah, yeah well, I found them, but they had fallen apart. So they were locked. And it must have been shrinkage, you know, when those, when those antlers... Right dry and they just shrink and they fallen apart and it's just incredible i think the the big thing was that you're able to find that hill and just have a vantage point at a distance and to enjoy it right um, yep well and you course. never know you know you, you're like well you know we could come around this corner of this hill and we could get a cool shot and it's just you want that shot it's like mining for gold you want to find that next nugget you just want it and so we were willing to put in the time but looking back on it just the experience was it, I'm sure it'll never happen again. Well, I guess I can't be sure, but I mean, that was a. Well, the odds of two big bulls being locked and finding that, I think, is a needle in a haystack. Right. The wolf encounter might happen again if you're super lucky or any of us are super lucky. Yeah. Not to go looking for it. The, the wolf found you where you were positioned, right? So, but yeah, the moose locked like that. Wow. Epic. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing time. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed traveling with us to remote Alaskan wilderness today and hearing about three of our most amazing days in the field, filming whether or not, obviously, photos or video 
were produced. It's about the experience. And as you know, we walk away with more in our mind's eye than on the shutter. And that was the case for Michael, but still, I mean, a vivid, to tell a story, I mean, vivid story, even as time's passed. So in closing today, I would like to thank our talented and hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. I would also like to take a moment and ask that no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, to make sure to click on the follow or subscribe icon. It's free. And to give us a positive review, a five-star rating or a thumbs up, show us the love as those allow us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a weekly basis. You can also see more of our team's content on Instagram, Facebook, and on our YouTube channel at Wild and Exposed Podcast. And, of course, on our website at wildandexposed.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.